either. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast, Episode 47, Hellenistic Philosophy, Cynics, Chironaics, and Peripatetics. Much of the scholarly attention regarding Hellenistic philosophy is dominated by a focus on three main schools, Epicureanism, Stoicism, and Skepticism. The overall structure of my narrative thus far has followed this traditional framework, and while each are indeed very important and demand a dedicated discussion, they were not the only philosophical movements of the period. In an effort to give you a more rounded perspective, I wanted to conclude our look at the philosophies that emerged during the Hellenistic period and spend an episode talking about the remaining major schools. These include the ascetic and oftentimes crass Cynics, the hedonistic predecessors of the Epicureans known as the Chironaics, and lastly the Peripatetics, the heirs of Aristotle. I won't be going as in-depth as I've already previously done with the Big Three, but at the very least I wanted to share their core ideas and historical backgrounds. So. I hope you enjoy this brief round tour of the remaining philosophies of the Hellenistic world. Like with the term Stoic, Cynic is a word that carries a specific connotation in a modern context, referring to the general perception that people are fundamentally selfish and will act in their own interest. Also like the term Stoic, the modern connotation is incomplete and somewhat misleading with regards to its classical inspiration. In contrast, ancient cynicism is not pessimistic and arguably could be considered a idealistic philosophy because fundamentally it argues that human beings are good at their very core and are only corrupted or burdened by the trappings of society, the pejorative civilization of Twain's Huck Finn, or perhaps an early form of anarcho-primitivism. The origins of cynicism are likely a retroactive fabrication, creating the notion of a strict continuity or evolution of cynical ideas and practices, which seems rather unlikely or unverifiable, simply because the cynic school was not really a school at all. Its most famous practitioners left little, if any, writings, and did not properly systematize their beliefs of their own accord, mostly because that was the point of cynicism. I just wanted to provide some clarification beforehand, and from this point, follow the story that was most accepted during antiquity for our convenience. Traditionally, the philosopher identified as the most influential proto-cynic would be none other than Socrates, which seems to be something of a common theme running throughout the last few episodes. Despite his sharp mind and equally sharp tongue, Socrates was famously a man of little wants and little means. This was a bit of a problem for his wife and children since his constant questioning and harassment of Athenian citizens did little to bring home food on the table. But stories are told of his ability to tolerate freezing temperatures, uncomfortable sleeping arrangements, and long marches without a single complaint. These hardy attributes and devotion towards the pursuit of wisdom formed the template for which later cynics aspired to. The second important figure was the half-Athenian Antisthenes, traditionally considered the founder of the school of cynicism by the ancient Greeks, though from analysis it's also equally likely that he was just another forerunner. Antisthenes was a fervent admirer of Socrates, allegedly even present at Socrates' court-ordered suicide, and continued to practice in Athens as a sophist and instructor until the 360s BC. He was a pioneer in philosophy with regards to the idea that wisdom was the greatest virtue, and by renouncing excessive material wealth and living in a state of poverty, it was far easier to attain said virtue. Quote, yes, and it is surely also the case that those who live a simple life are more honest than those who make it their aim to amass worldly goods. 
for those who are most satisfied with what they have are least likely to covet the possessions of others. End quote. But without a doubt, the most famous, or infamous, depending on your perspective, cynic, and the one most often described as the founder of the movement as a whole, is the man known as Diogenes of Sinope. Described as a Socrates gone mad, Diogenes had taken the practices of his predecessors to a whole new level, and became the poster child of the cynic movement as a whole. Born in the city of Sinope in Asia Minor during the late 5th century, Diogenes was the son of a well-to-do banker who got himself and his family exiled on the charge of manipulating the coinage of the city. This is perhaps the only confirmable element of Diogenes' early life story, since numismatic evidence suggests that the manipulation story is actually true. But the account is subject to legend and slander, as no contemporary writings about the man survive. Allegedly, Diogenes visited an oracle and asked how to bring fame to his name. The oracle told him to, quote, restamp the currency. And so he became the metaphorical enemy of wealth and champion of poverty, forever afterwards spending his time living as the dog of Greek philosophy. The association of Diogenes and dogs is a tradition connected to the origin of the name Cynic, for in Greek the term is kainikoi, literally translated as dog-like. This moniker has a number of explanations, such as a reference to the white dog gymnasium where Antisthenes started practicing. Or perhaps it was the behavior of the cynics resembling that of street dogs with their shamelessness. Diogenes drank water with his bare hands after he threw his wooden cup away to emulate a poor boy, slept on the ground or inside of a large overturned jar, and openly, uh, relieved himself of his carnal urges in the marketplace, musing how if only he could relieve his hunger by rubbing his belly as well. The ascetic levels of poverty, which brought Antisthenes' arguments to the extreme, were matched only by his emulation of Socrates' constant prodding, though instead of inquiry, Diogenes would openly mock and ridicule people, societal norms, and any measure of authority. He would walk around the marketplace in the daytime, bearing a lantern while searching for a rational man, insulted politicians and orators whom he considered to be mere lackeys of the crowd, and thought the gods to be spiteful or non-existent. A particularly favorite target for the dog was Plato himself. On one occasion, when Plato argued the definition of a man as being a featherless biped, Diogenes burst into the classroom with a plucked chicken, crying out, Behold, a man! Forcing Plato to amend his definition to a featherless biped with nails. Now while this story is perfectly in line with the infamy of Diogenes, it's very likely an exaggeration or a parody, but I thought to include it since it's just so wonderful. The fame of Diogenes was such that he had held the attention of kings, as Alexander the Great eagerly paid him a visit while during a stay in the city of Corinth. Allegedly, when Alexander approached Diogenes and inquired if there was anything he could do for him, the cynic merely stared back, and told him to get out of his sunlight. Despite the gruff retort, Alexander still proclaimed that if he were not Alexander, he would wish to be Diogenes, though the philosopher returned the compliment by saying if he were not Diogenes, then he still would wish to be Diogenes. In the period during and immediately following Diogenes' lifetime, the Cynic school continued to produce notable figures. There was Crates, a hunchback who managed to attract the attentions of a woman named Hipparchia, who eventually married Crates and became a prominent cynical philosopher herself. Most notably, they consummated the marriage in the open, over and over and over again. Beyond the streets of cities, there were a number of cynic philosophers at the courts of the Hellenistic monarchs, such as Bion of Baristhenes, a member of the circle of the philosophically-minded Antigonus II Gonatas in Macedon. 
a less lucky individual was Sotades, who spent time in Ptolemaic Alexandria, and for his graphic ribbing of the incestuous union of Ptolemy II and his sister Arsinoe II, he ended up in a lead coffin at the bottom of the sea. The antics of Diogenes are certainly entertaining, and no doubt have been exaggerated over the centuries following his death. But, if you read between the lines and obvious theatrics, Diogenes and the rest of the cynical philosophers were constantly attempting to convince the audience that their way of living was morally bankrupt, and these displays are as much attempts to convert others as they are to reinforce their own beliefs. According to the cynics, human beings should live according to nature. This is pretty vague, so let's break this down. In the state of nature, outside of the constructs of what I will call civilization, human beings are at their happiest, unburdened by concepts of shame or greed, content with the bounty that nature provides, though hard and harsh as it may be sometimes. However, through the advancement of technology and the construction of cities, humans have created artificial barriers between themselves and the natural world. By living in a state that acclimates people to acquiring tastes they otherwise would not have, or giving false conceptions of what the good is, this just causes further misery in human beings that was not there to begin with. As Antisthenes argues, the accumulation of wealth often engenders the greed for further wealth, perpetuating a cycle of misfortune and pains not only for the victims of despots or robbers, but also the despots and robbers themselves. From the cynical perspective, people are under the false pretense that in order to achieve pleasure, one must try to avoid the pain that living in the state of nature will bring by constantly seeking cushioning. In reality, one ought to embrace pain as part of living, and that pain and pleasure can go hand in hand and are both necessary to achieving happiness. So how do we remove the shackles of civilization and dedicate ourselves to living the cynical life? Unlike the other schools of philosophy, the cynics did not care much about physics or logic. Instead, they emphasized the teaching of virtue by the way of ethics and living well. The term that they used is eschesis, a Greek word meaning training or discipline, and is the root of the English ascetic or asceticism. When we seek to unburden ourselves, it is important that we toughen our constitution, since it has been softened by living, akin to a baby swallowed in a soft blanket, and it usually does not come instantaneously to the eager disciple. Followers are said to have performed various acts to familiarize themselves with the idea of shameless living, such as shaving half their heads, begging from statues, and walking barefoot to toughen their souls. The essential element of cynicism is the embrace of poverty or at the very least the renunciation of excessive material wealth. In ancient Greece, the concept of noble poverty is something to have existed prior to the cynical movement. Famously, the Spartans were said to have rejected extravagance and opulence in order to better dedicate themselves to martial virtue. Though, directing labor to a population of slave helots must be taken into consideration on that particular example, and the vice of greed and luxury loving was a common trope ascribed to the decadent Orientals and the great king of Persia. But to truly abstain from participating in the larger sphere of public life and renounce all personal possessions is a more extreme step than what many moralists and historians previously considered, and the cynics argued that it was an imperative step to returning to our natural states of happiness. Therefore, by lacking the need for external or material wealth and living in a state of poverty, the cynic can acquire virtue, which itself is the greatest wealth one could have. Avoiding the distractions that are associated with civilization, such as politics or superstitious religion, was also strongly encouraged. Diogenes proclaimed himself to be cosmopolitan, a citizen of the world, in a time where one's involvement with their polis was important to their self-identity, especially to those participating in the civic life of said polis. 
there is also a general mistrust of figures of great political authority. The periods of violence that followed the rise of Philip II, Alexander the Great, and his successors no doubt strengthened the evidence for the cynics that such institutions only divided people and caused unnecessary suffering, blocking the path of virtue and true happiness. In effect, it might be appropriate to say that the cynics believed in some sort of notion of common humanism, where issues such as class, sex, or race, or creed did not matter in the grand scheme of things. Following the heyday of Diogenes, Crates, and Hipparchia, the Cynics never achieved the same level of fame and notoriety as they had in the very early Hellenistic period, and the life of Diogenes transformed into more of a literary character and caricature. Yet, like a stubborn weed, adherents continued to practice and preach the outlook of the dog philosophers well into late antiquity. Christianity, though labeling many of its members as atheists and lusty deviants as a whole, nevertheless held a respect for many of the cynics' philosophical outlooks, especially regarding their attitudes towards asceticism. One can easily see the parallels between the barefooted cynics and the lives of famous early Christian ascetics, such as Saint Simeon who sat atop his pillar for nearly 40 years, or Saint Antony, who lived in the Egyptian wilderness. Cynicism's more humanist attitudes have been compared to the teachings of Christ, Dante even believed that Diogenes deserved a position in the first circle of the Inferno with the other virtuous pagan philosophers, joining his spiritual predecessor and inspiration, Socrates. With the dog philosophers covered, we'll move from asceticism to outright hedonism by turning to the group known as the Chironaics. Hello, my name is Tom Dinas, and I'm the creator of the Delicious Legacy podcast a scrumptious podcast about archaeogastronomy. If you love podcasts, food, history, ancient recipes, long-lost ingredients and unknown herbs and spices from the time of Pythagoras to the legendary Roman Apicius, from ancient Mesopotamia and from the time of pharaohs, this is the podcast for you. You can listen on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, or any other platform you're getting your podcast from. I am also on Patreon as The Delicious Legacy, and of course you can find me on Twitter as Delicious Legacy. Thank you. At the start of our series on Hellenistic philosophy, we began with the Epicureans, who believed that pleasure was the highest good one could achieve. And when we speak of pleasure, we are largely talking about a state of happiness brought about by moderate living and an avoidance of pain a means to an end. Prior to the success that the Epicurean school found, there was a contemporary school that also emphasized pleasure as the highest good, but took it to a much more hedonistic and self-serving extreme than the somewhat austere Epicureans. In the 430s BC, the man known as Aristippus was born in the city of Kyrene, a Greek colony founded off the coast of northeastern Libya, long before the arrival of the armies of Alexander and Ptolemy. The prosperity of the region no doubt brought many teachers and sophists, and it is very possible that a young Aristippus was exposed to philosophy through this way, though we have no proof in the sources. At some point, he traveled to Athens as part of his studies, and eventually became part of the retinue of Socrates around 416 BC. If we believe the stories of Xenophon, a fellow pupil of Socrates, then Aristippus was something of a negatively perceived figure within the circle since he did not agree with Socrates' notion of moderation and hard work, believing instead that one ought to live the most easy and most pleasant life as possible. After Socrates' death, he would travel from place to place, 
living off the wealth of tyrants and monarchs, indulging himself in a life of luxury while preaching his hedonistic outlooks as a tutor. Over time, he had amassed disciples, and following his death in the middle of the 4th century, they would eventually form a doctrine around Aristippus' ideology, and became known as the Chironaics, in reference to the city of Kyrene and the area of Chironaica, where the vast majority of the members would be from. Magus, a step-sibling of Ptolemy II Philadelphus, became the de facto ruler and eventual self-proclaimed king of Kyrene from about 301 BC onwards, and in an effort to compete against his brother in Alexandria, he sought to make Kyrene a cultural capital as well. So, the Chironaics continued to find themselves a home there. It's debatable whether Aristippus was the actual founder of the school, but this is what the tradition maintains, and so for our convenience, I will go along with it. Followers of Aristippus included his daughter Arete, and the first to formalize the overall belief structure was Aristippus' grandson, also named Aristippus, but better known as the Metrodidact, meaning mother taught, as his mother Arete was his instructor. Arete and the Metrodidact were just one group that had developed from Aristippus' original teachings, as his other students eventually formed their own branches as well. During the early mid 3rd century BC, the peak of Chironaic thought, there were three main teachers, Hegesius, Theodorus, and Anicaris. Despite the number of named individuals, we have no writings that survive from the Chironaic school, so once again, we have to rely on interpretations by other writers. The core of Chironaic philosophy is based around two fundamental beliefs from which all other variations derive. The ultimate good is pleasure, and pain or distress should be avoided at all cost, making it a hedonistic outlook. Things like good food, Alcohol, expensive clothing, and other luxuries that give us immediate pleasure should all be embraced to better our existence. Compare this to the ascetic cynics, who see such luxuries as a symptom of an unhappy lifestyle, or the hedonistic epicureans who distress a degree of moderation and insist that pleasure is the absence of pain and distress. To the Chironaic, the key is not to avoid or abstain from such pleasures. It's being able to indulge in your pleasures without being ruled by them. Famously, Aristippus openly bragged about his sexual relationship with the Hatira Lais on the principle that, quote, I possess Lais, but am not possessed by her. Much like the Epicureans, addictions and compulsions to seek out certain pleasures were frowned upon by the Chironaics because of the unnecessary pain and mental duress that follows when one suffers withdrawals and cravings due to its absence. The lifestyle of the Chironaics was thus centered around the notion of living life to the fullest at any one time, and to focus on the present, rather than dwelling upon the past or the future. Quote, For only the present, Aristippus said, truly belongs to us, and not what has passed by or what we are anticipating. For the one is gone and done with, and it is uncertain whether the other one will come to be. End quote. According to the Chironaic's opinion, the past is something that is behind us, lost from our grasp and unable to be affected by any of our actions. The future goes the other way, being distant to the point where we have no sense of certainty regarding what will happen next. So, the only logical solution is to enjoy what we have in the present, given the past's untouchability and the uncertainty of the future. While the tenet of pleasure equals good remains central, the directions taken by the prominent philosophers I mentioned earlier are interesting to note. The first is Hegesius, who wrote a book entitled On a Man Starving Himself to Death, which has not survived, so that alone should tell you everything you need to know about the man. 
but Hegesius took a decisively pessimistic attitude towards the Chironaic belief system, perhaps even nihilistic. He agreed that pleasure is the highest good, but that life is afflicted with too much pain and suffering, and so actually experiencing proper pleasure, and by extension, happiness, is impossible, leading to a state where both life and death are desirable. Hegesius's attitude and persuasion towards suicide was apparently so severe that his benefactor Magas of Kyrene had to censor the philosopher's discussion on the topic, due to some of his listeners actually following through with it. Theodorus the Atheist believed that while pleasure and pain were certainly goods, they were only intermediate goods, part of the paths that lead us to justice and wisdom, the true good, or grief and suffering, the true evil. Anicarus, on the other hand, de-emphasized pain as an evil, and instead sought to elevate the importance of pleasures overriding such pains. The famous example arguing against an absence of pain being a necessary qualification for happiness make reference to the state of the dead, since they, do, since they clearly don't feel any pain, but definitely not in an enviable position. The extent to which we seek out self-gratifying pleasures might be seen as selfish or indulgent, which it is to some degree. However, these later Chironaic thinkers did debate the importance of this psychological egoism, using such ideas as friendship and relationships to illustrate their points. Theodorus leaned more heavily in the self-serving direction, arguing that adultery and theft are only bad because they are frowned upon by society, and thought things like friendship should be pursued insofar as they benefit us with little or no cost. Anicarus, meanwhile, not only believed that we form friendships out of a desire for self-pleasure, but we should actually be willing to deal with pain on behalf of our friends as part of a goodwill towards them with altruism being a possibly applicable term. The fixation on pleasure and pain is likely rooted in the epistemological beliefs of the Chironaics. The important term is pathos, the plural pathe, meaning to undergo a change, which in reference to human beings means undergoing a particular sensation, i.e. the sensation of pleasure or pain. Pleasure is said to be a smooth motion, while pain is a rough one. Motion does not mean locomotion, the movement from one space to another, it's referencing the alteration and changing of the state or properties of the individual recipient, an affectation which leads to the sensations of pleasure and pain. The experience is not just physical, but mental as well. As a rough approximation, the Chironaics also do not believe that we can make accurate value judgments on the state of the external world, and the only thing we can truly ever know is the pathe of pain and pleasure. For those of you that listened to my last episode, this may sound remarkably similar to the philosophy argued by the Peronian and academic skeptics, who also agreed on the idea of an unknowable external state. Things that appear to be one characteristic to everyone may just be a mere illusion, a construct that is not a definitive universal statement about said object. What may be red to me may be yellow to others, and the only accurate statements I can make is that I undergo the experience of redness. After the heyday of the thinkers of the early 3rd century, and the disappearance of the royal patronage in Kyrene following Magas' death, the Chironaic school had all but disappeared into obscurity, replaced by the more popular and longer-lasting hedonistic school of Epicurus and Epicureans. Despite their rather brief flourishing, the Chironaics nevertheless managed to innovate ideas such as hedonism and skepticism, possibly inspiring or at the very least directly influencing the great Hellenistic movements of the Peronians, academics, and Epicureans. With the Chironaics done, we can now conclude the episode by covering the heirs of Aristotle, the Peripatetic Philosophers.
In the sacred trinity of Greek philosophers, there is no doubt that along with Socrates and Plato, the final position would belong to Aristotle. A bit of a renaissance man and scientific pioneer, Aristotle spent decades writing on many subjects, ranging from zoology to metaphysics and ethics, held up in a scholarly reverence in both Latin Europe and the later Islamic world. Though often remembered as the tutor of a young Alexander the Great at the court of Pella, Aristotle established a school known as the Lyceum, or Lycaon, in the outskirts of Athens in 335 BC after leaving the institution of Plato's academy. His long and illustrious career came to an end upon his death in 323-322, coincidentally the year that effectively marked the beginning of the Hellenistic period, and so his successors would continue to lead the school in the midst of an outburst of new ideas and philosophical movements. These successors, lasting from 322 to about the mid-2nd century AD, would be known as the Peripatetic philosophers, who taught at the institution of the Peripatos, a later name for the Lyceum. The name Peripatos is possibly derived from the term Peripatio, meaning to walk around, a reference to the tendencies of Aristotle and his successors to walk around as they discussed philosophy, or a reference to the covered walkway that the Lyceum was located on. The school itself ran under the direction of the Scholarch, who would divide his lectures up between the morning and afternoon, the former reserved for advanced students and the latter was made available for the public. The first successor to the Peripatos was Theophrastus, by all accounts an extremely popular choice with both his peers and audience, being able to attract thousands to attend each of his lectures whenever he spoke. We are definitely going to speak more about Theophrastus in my eventual discussion on the developments in science during the Hellenistic Age, but suffice it to say that his most famous contribution was in the realm of botany, the study of plants. However, the scope of his studies nearly matched that of his predecessor, as can be seen in Diogenes Laertius's extensive list of his works. Another of his notable contributions was to logic, cleaning up much of Aristotle's original ideas and refining them to something more rigorously applicable. Following Theophrastus' retirement around 289 was Strato of Lampsacus, a relatively obscure man who was nicknamed the Natural Philosopher, indicative of his interest in physics. The longest-serving scholarch would be Lyco, who allegedly headed the Peripatos from about 274 to around 230-229, and was considered an excellent teacher, but also was accused by later hostile sources of being something of a party animal and heavy drinker. Outside of the school, some of the students of the academy would set out into the world and take a part in events elsewhere. The Athenian Demetrius of Phalerum, a student of Theophrastus, became the effective puppet ruler of Athens during the reign of Cassander I, managing to revise the legal system of Athens and composed a few works of his own before mysteriously dying by snakebite after a political disagreement in the Alexandrian court of Ptolemy II. Clearchus of Soli might be the most well-traveled of the bunch, and is thought to have carried the teachings of the Peripatos to the city of Ikhanum in Seleucid Bactria, modern Afghanistan. There was also a representative of the Peripatos as part of the delegation of philosophers to the city of Rome in 156 named Critolaus, clearly indicative of the sway that the school still held, and appropriately impressed the later Cicero as a rhetorician and orator. The remaining scholarchs are relatively unknown to us, and so I believe it's appropriate to talk about some of the basic ideas of the Peripatos. An important question to bring up when it comes to talking about the overall belief structure of Peripatetic philosophy is how much does it resemble or deviate from the original ideas of Aristotle? Now, giving even a summary account of Aristotle and his ideas would take multiple episodes, 
so I will not subject you to such a thing as we approach the end of our discussion. And in due time, we will talk about the peripedetic approach to the natural world, since it's so important to understand their contributions to science. Since ethics is an important theme running through our discussion, and in the Hellenistic philosophical schools in general, why don't we proceed from there? In the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle lays out that human beings ought to live in accordance to virtue, or arete, which allows them to achieve which allows them to achieve a state of flourishing, eudaimonia. Virtue is something that isn't inborn, but rather needs to be learned, for the individual must habituate themselves towards constantly performing virtuous actions to the point where it is not even a conscious thought. What ultimately defines virtue is, quote, a state of character concerned with choice, lying in a mean, i.e. the mean relative to us, this being determined by a rational principle, and by that principle by which a man of practical wisdom would determine it. End quote. To elaborate further, the virtue of courage is the middle ground between cowardice and foolhardiness, and there are some traits that lack a middle ground altogether, such as murder or cruelty. Virtue is a state that you either possess or you don't, as a truly virtuous person never performs a non-virtuous act, however minor. In his work, The Characters, Theophrastus gleefully sketches some vignettes of character archetypes that demonstrate the issues of possessing extreme traits and behaviors, with such titles as the flatterer, the boor, the grumbler, and the stupid, to name a few. For many of the peribedics, it seems that a particular emphasis was placed on emotional states, and how they play in a system of ethics, and the extent to which external goods play a role in happiness, two questions that Aristotle had left relatively underdeveloped. Contrary to the appropriately named Stoics, many peribedics believed emotions to be essential aspects to living a virtuous life. For instance, a seemingly negative state like anger is part of the positive trait of self-defense, while happiness derived from the suffering of others is considered unhealthy and anathema to virtuous living. In addition, while the Stoics believed virtue to be enough for happiness, those like Theophrastus saw issue with this. Theophrastus gives an example of how a man, tortured on a rack, despite whatever internal virtue they may possess, is most likely not going to be happier than those safely sitting at home. The Peripedetics classified three types of goods, of the mind, of the body, and of fortune, each providing their own contribution to the person's overall well-being. Like all groups, there wasn't a universal agreement on such matters, as Crito Laos believed that the goods of the mind were definitely the most important of the lot. Aristotle had argued that man is a political animal, and by training ourselves to become virtuous people, we are better able to involve ourselves with the machinery of governance and justice. Of course, in an age where one's autonomy in the polis was comparatively limited prior to the rise of Philip, Alexander, and the various Hellenistic dynasties, there was some concern as to whether such civic participation was possible. However, this did not necessarily turn the peripedetic philosophers away from such a task, and some, like Demetrius of Phalera, managed to perform rather successfully, despite his eventual flight from the city of Athens and likely murder in Egypt. But others turned to ideas more utopian and theoretical in its place. Like so many of the other schools of the Hellenistic period, the siege and sack of Athens in 86 BC by the Roman commander Sulla had ended the institution of the Peripatos. In some sense, the Peripatetic school was seen as perpetually in decline, the Scholarchs unable to match the exhaustive deeds of their great founder. However, many of the works attributed to Aristotle and his successors were compiled and brought to Rome by Sulla shortly thereafter, 
and by the middle of the first century, there was an effective organization of an Aristotelian canon by one Andronicus of Rhodes, a self-professed peripatetic. From there, it took root, and despite the destruction of the peripatos, many continued to see themselves as the heirs of Aristotle, well into the third century AD, and the influence of what some called the first teacher was only possible because of the dedicated work of his successors. On that note, we can now consider ourselves finished with our coverage of the philosophical schools of the Hellenistic period. I mean, I would like to pretend that I'm sad to say goodbye, but I'm not. In all seriousness though, despite it being a reasonably rough experience compared to my normal episodes, I'm glad to see the final results, and I have hoped that you dear listeners were able to get something out of my simplified explanations of topics that much smarter people than myself have covered. If you want to learn more about any particular school, I always encourage you to check out my episode notes for a complete listing of my sources that I use during my research. And for this episode, I've taken the extra step of providing a copy of my script, along with the relevant citations and footnotes included. I've been tinkering with the idea for a while, and I wanted to see if there was any interest in me to continue doing this from this point onwards. So, you can find it by clicking on the link to the episode notes in the podcast description or via my website at www.hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com. If you liked what you listened to, consider subscribing and leaving a review of your thoughts and feelings on the platform of your choice. Or you can support the show by donating to my coffee page, buying a show bookmark via Etsy, or gifting a book from the show's research wish list. And the links to all of these will be included in the podcast description. Next time, we'll move from philosophy to the world of Asia Minor and the Black Sea. So, until then, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>